0: Father, that is what you do. You give us your life. Thank you for raising us up, for not leaving us where we were. God, help us to keep our eyes on you. when we keep our eyes on you, the storm can move all around and we will not be faced. And you always bring your joy in the morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for your face that we can gaze upon. It is so glorious and it is all we need. You are all we need. God, please draw us to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be. Thank you.
1: What a great three-word sentence and fantastic song, Give Me Jesus. You know, it's... Uh, what you prayed, Krista, it's what the worship team beautifully led us in song about, and that is a reality that um, he is not only the one worthy of our focus and attention, but get this, he is the author and finisher of our faith. So most people I meet can uh, tell you from their own experience that they met Jesus at some point. It's not everyone, but it's many. But the question sometimes we run into in the midst of life is, so God, what are you doing with me? How are you working out the details of my life? Uh, The author and finisher of our faith is a real statement uh, to that effect. He began it, and he will complete it. Amen? Amen. I mean, it's it's like this, uh, the work you have in me begun will by your grace be fully done. It's a great statement, and it's a true statement from the New Testament. The Bible uh, speaks extensively about the God that doesn't give up, the God that doesn't go away, the God that doesn't uh, plug his nose and... Uh, turn his back on his people in disgust, though he has plenty of opportunity to do that. Um, He stays. He works through the mess. We take him by the hand and we say, God, do something that um, I don't know how it can come about, but I'm counting on you to pull it off. I'm describing real lives this week when I shared what I just did, people who have lost loved ones in our church, uh, real hurt, real suffering, and you don't have to wait for an illustration of that in uh, the world we live in today. It's kind of our day, isn't it? It's uh, true of the world we live in. But I do want to start this morning, first of all, by saying uh, welcome in, everyone. Welcome you who are joining us from other places. Um, and I get a regular report from folks in um, nearby, in some cases, far away uh, as well, where they uh, are very glad for the truth and the the powerful worship that is part of our Sunday gathering. So we're glad you're part of that. We hope that you'll become part of this. Um, today there's a few more seats because it's a holiday weekend, and uh, we're in Oregon, in case you didn't know. And in Oregon, everybody. Goes and plays all summer long, and um, so the church has competition. It's people that go out in recreation all summer long. Okay, <laughs> just saying, just saying, just laying on a pile of guilt when I can. So there you go. But um, no, I'm I'm teasing you. By the way, I declared today just to lighten the mood a little bit. Uh, variant name day. So you can call me Stevie Boo if you want, and it's okay. So I tried Abby. Where is Abby? She went with the youth. Um, her, her name's Abigail. Thank you very much. She made sure I understood that. But, um, you know, we're we're working on different people's names. Johnny. Johnny, baby. John. Jonathan. John. John. Okay, we'll stick with John. Uh, anyway, have some fun with your friends and family today, um, and blame me, okay? So let's go back. Um, You have to go back a ways. Most of you have to read about uh, this person, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, He is a person who was a, like myself, a pastor, but his times were even more treacherous than ours. He was a pastor, a German pastor, who stood up and spoke out against the Nazi regime Uh, spearheaded by uh, the, the evil Adolf Hitler's reign of terror. And he did so under the threat of torture, which he received, danger to his family, which was constant, and death itself, which was his fate just before the concentration camp where he was placed at Flossenburg, uh, just days before it was liberated, in July or in April of 1945, he was hung. And he was hung not because he took a shot at Hitler, but because he spoke out in the name of Jesus Christ and said, "This is not right. Uh, we we must not be okay with this." And he and he spoke in a way that. Got noticed. In the end, he gave his life for it. So, as you might expect, he had a profoundly personal view of the subject we're going to talk about today. I realize it's kind of a risky subject uh, on a vacation weekend, right? A lot of people are away playing. Their thought is not on suffering, but on the opposite pleasure and, I don't know, having fun. And that's okay. Um, But it's 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 an important thing our series is summer and leave the results to God. Suffering's no exception to that. It will visit us invited or not. And we have a choice to make along the way. Now, at risk of some of you taking a good nap when we open God's word right now because I'm going to give you something that is actually the takeaway for the day. There's no greater place of suffering than the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross that followed. That's why today is so important and appropriate that we share communion. No no greater place. There's no argument there. But in that garden, Jesus had two prayers. One, really, and the follow-up was his declaration, his decision. The prayer was, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. Not once, but three times. The follow-up is, I believe, not just his words, but what his will is for my life and yours. Yet not my will, but thine. There it is. If you really have a busy day, you can fold your Bible right now and, and get on with the day. But that's the truth that we're going to unpackage here this morning. Back to bon, Bonhoeffer. Uh, I think not only did he have an acquaintance with suffering that was pretty much unparalleled with notable exceptions, um, he, um, as a result, had much to say, not a little, a lot, to say about the subject that um, I, I'm going to just say it's a downer. It's a bummer. Why not just talk about happiness and joy? And, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And, you, you know, um, I came to give life an abundance. I don't know all that the word abundance means, and neither do you, but I'll take two scoops, right? I like that. It works with the holiday weekend. But... Here's Bonhoeffer. Suffering is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his or her master. We know that from Jesus' words. The cross is laid on every Christian. Yikes. In other words, the cross isn't just about Jesus, he paid for our sins on that cross. But then he went on to say, um, you want to come after me? you got to do something that's terribly uncomfortable. And it's not just words. You must deny yourself. I don't do that easily. Take up your cross daily. I might be in for that once in a lifetime. But Jesus said daily and follow me. Uh so Bonhoeffer finishes his words, when Christ calls someone, he bids him or her come and die. Jesus said plainly, I quoted the words from Luke 9, verse 23, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. The apostle Paul actu- actually said predictively, he was advancing the truth of that day and saying it's going to apply to me and you in 21st century when he said indeed all not most but all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer the word he uses persecuted I've never talked to somebody that's been persecuted in any way that didn't agree that the word suffering also describes their journey okay Even so, lots of time and thought has been spent on the subject of suffering. Uh, Lots of people write about it. In fact, in my study, I have an entire shelf of books by titles like this, Glorious Intruders by Johnny Erickson Tata. Great book. All of these I've read. Shattered Dreams by Larry Crabb. We have big plans big dreams, and our legs are taken out from under us. Still other books, when, when God Doesn't Make Sense by James Dobson. Have you ever gone through something and you scratched your head, bald? This doesn't make, I don't get this. What's going on here? The Problem of Pain, a classic by C.S. Lewis. If you've got the capacity to read it, you ought to, because it'll take you into deep places. And you would expect one of my favorite, it's one of the earlier books written on this subject in modern times. Where is God when it hurts, asks Philip Yancey. Great book. And then I have another one that um, I've talked to people who've benefited from by Ron Lee Davis uh, called simply Mistreated. And there's people among us that have been mistreated, or we know those that have. But I'm going to just go out on a limb and say one of my favorite, probably my favorite book, because it's the most profound book I've ever read, aside from the Bible, on suffering, comes from a uh, philosophy professor, Peter Kreeft, K-R-E-E-F-T, from Boston University. He has, um, I think, more doctorates than I have uh, letters in my last name. So really good, really smart guy. And he says, making his book titled, Making Sense Out of Suffering, it grabs me. He writes for everyone who's ever wept and wondered why. Why is this happening to me? He does so with gutsy honesty. So brace yourself. These are his words. And I'm just going to be honest and say they're my words as well. I believe in God, the God of the Bible. Let me stop. How many believe that? Hold your Bible up if you got one. That's it, okay? And I'm sure you're doing that at home. I believe in the God, in God, the God of the Bible, the all-powerful and all-loving Father. An amen time. That's a good thing. All of those things are true. However, writes Kreef. that does not solve my problem of suffering. It is my problem of suffering. And not just suffering, but unjust suffering in a God-made, God-controlled universe, end quote. That's a big sentence. But if you're honest, there are moments when you say, in the midst of why, God, it's like, God, I know something about your power. I know a few things about your authority. And you could shut this puppy down right now. You could stop this suffering. I realize I'm I'm pushing things out of ways, but it's important. Or else this is just academic. So for those. Among us today. Who are here. Or elsewhere. And are among those who have wept. And wondered why. um, My message isn't likely. To wipe away every tear. Or the trauma that you're, you're. You're thinking about. Or know about. However. I believe, I really believe that it will provide the hope that you need and that those that you know who are hurting need as well. All right? So with that in mind, Matthew's gospel is a good stop at the beginning here. Chapter 16, if you want to turn there, we're just going to be in the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17. So Matthew 16 and 17. It takes us to a scene where Jesus had a conversation with his disciples. And they're having this discussion in a place far north, the border um, between Israel and further north in Syria. It's Caesarea Philippi. It's a mountainous area. And they gather together. In fact, some of us were on a trip to Israel, and we went there, and we sat and imagined This scene in Matthew 16, we actually went there and it was a conversation Jesus had with his disciples, kind of pulled them up close and said, guys, there's a lot out there about me. Folks are, there's, I used to call it the scuttlebutt, but people went, what did he say butt in church? Yeah, it's um, the scoop on the street. Jesus says, what's the scoop on the street about me? Because I know you're getting a lot. People are coming at you with, hey, who is this guy you guys are hanging out with? And you're giving them answers. So what are people saying? And they come up with a lot of different answers. And then the discussion in there, that goes from who who he was. The discussion shifts by Jesus choosing to why he came. And verse 21 takes us into this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples... That he must go to Jerusalem, they're significantly north of Jerusalem, so they got to go south. And he must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter couldn't take it any longer. That's my editorial introduction to verse 22 not willing to sit there any longer, he takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me. This is not a misprint, Satan. He knew his name, but he also knew what he was doing was a temptation from the enemy himself for Jesus to find a shortcut or a way around. Get behind me, Satan. You are are a stumbling block to me. You do not have your mind on the concerns of God, but mere human concerns. And then with an audience, obviously, Jesus says to his disciple, Whoever wants to be my disciples, Luke 9 quotes this. Here it is in verse 24 of Matthew 16. Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life, I know a lot of people like that. You see my hand? I'm thumping my chest. I like the idea of saving my life. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his father, Father's glory with the angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I say to you, some of you standing here in that gathering will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So Jesus reveals here in this section of Matthew 16, his reason for coming. For the first time, and I'm going to say it like it is in haunting detail, he drops a bomb on them, and it has the jolt of a bomb. He had given some hint back in Matthew 12, you could look that up, but it was nowhere near as this explicit statement, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And I'm going to lay it all on the line. I will die. I will suffer first. And then I will. Give my life on a cross. And. There was no me missing. uh, The meaning of verse 21. It's a long verse here in the text. No missing it whatsoever. Peter's resistance reveals that. Refusing to accept. His troubling words. This. This was both bad and very disappointing news if you were Peter. Because you know Peter up to this point is kind of edging in. Along with two others we'll see in a moment in chapter 17. And, um, and he had plans. And I'm not calling out his plans. I don't think they're bad plans. I just think, man, I've, I've realized that you're the giver of life. In fact, he says it earlier in chapter 16. You're the the answer. Um, You're the Lord, the Christ, the Messiah. You're the one that was sent from God. All of the above was accurate. Peter got it. And and Peter, along with that insight, which, by the way, Jesus told him, you didn't come up with that by going to a good seminary. You you got that straight from God himself. The Holy Spirit told you that, Peter. 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 Today's member uh, changed the wording, changed the name day. So Peter, you, you, you've got a handle on this. But he also had a very strong sense, along with James and John, uh, that they were special, that um, they were members of the inner circle, if you could call it that. That's a man-made label. There were twelve disciples. But just simply playing playing back the videotape, you would, even a casual, you'd say, you know what, those three seem to hang with Jesus a little more tightly. They seem to have more inner circle knowledge. Maybe they knew some jokes others didn't know. Or maybe they knew something deeper and more personal than the others knew. And uh, as members of that circle, um, to hear then. Jesus, their hero, speak of suffering and dying, verse 21, was, well, unspeakable. It messes up our plan, at least Peter would say. So, not surprising, look again at verse 22. Peter insists two times, two times, never, never, it's emphatic. That's a way of saying it like I just did. With a finger pointed and saying, this will not happen here. This is Peter talking to Jesus. No way. I'm going to let that happen. they got to come through me if they're going to get you. It's that tone. Okay, now you're with it? For lots of reasons, but that's what's in the text here. Over my dead body, Jesus. And Peter's reaction drew a scathing rebuke in verse twenty three by Jesus, who in sharing this news, was trying to help his men prepare for a really really hard patch ahead and 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 Jesus then adds in verse twenty eight um, some of you here are are going to see something uh in fact, you, you, you won't die without seeing my glory. As it turns out, the sum to which he was referring is this Peter, James, and John. I want to go back just for in your memory maybe because other pl- passages, Mark chapter 5 tells about how there was this official whose, uh, whose daughter died. And, um, and when Jesus came and actually rose, raised her to life again, he, he picked three, and he said, you come with me. You get to watch this. I, I don't know the effect it had on them exactly, but I've tried to imagine it for myself. And I would, I would struggle with the, being humbled by that. I can't believe what I just saw. Shocked by it. And then maybe a little proud about it. I mean, after all, I'm one of the three that got to watch I don't know, but I'm just guessing. So they, they were there when this deceased daughter in Mark chapter 5 uh, is raised up. And these three would be the only ones that Jesus uh, takes with him. Uh, the night that he was, just before he was arrested, he went to Gethsemane. It's the garden across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. There's this garden, Mount of Olives. Think of it that way. And, and these three would become three that were invited by Jesus to come be with me, stand with me, um, hold me up. I need you guys, um, however you want to put it. And next up in chapter 17, we'll see right now, these are the three that Jesus brings to this high mountain. Uh, Some have speculated it's Mount Hermon. There's a great camp in California called Mount Hermon, but it wasn't that one. So, so tallest peak in Israel. So that would fit with the high mountain idea, about nine thousand feet. And this is the northern boundary of Israel. And so he's there, and he says, "Hey, come with me, guys." And This rather strenuous trek is described for us. Well, let's read on in chapter 17, all right? Look back at your your Bible. After six days, so a week later, Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. Reading it slow to take it in. His clothes became as white as the light. And just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. (laughs) I would be passed out so fast. I mean, and so were they. They were so close to being, I'm sure the Holy Spirit was just feeding them oxygen or something. But verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three shelters. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still mid-sentence speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased, listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified, circle that word. But Jesus came and touched them get up, he said, most frequent command in the New Testament, do not fear, get up, don't be afraid, and when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus, and they were coming down the mountain, we're not given anything between verse 8 and 9, there had to be all kinds of, what? This is crazy. What is that? Oh, my goodness. Simply, they were coming down the mountain. Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone. These are like impossible words, wouldn't you say? I'm pretty sure that they talked a lot about this. And I'm pretty sure Jesus was okay with it. But the command, I mean, I'm not saying Jesus didn't mean it when he said hush. But I'm not sure how you could humanly hush at this moment. Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Um, let's slow down for a sec. I tried to capture it in fresh ways. How many have heard this story? Okay, so I did that for you. Because you're like me. If you hear, if you hear it um, ten times, it kind of loses its impact sometimes. And I, and I want it to be fresh for you as well. So let's, let's understand where they were. They had climbed a big, tall mountain. So that means they're winded. Okay, They didn't get up there and rest for a week. It was a week after Matthew 16 in Philippi, Caesarea Philippi. And then they went up the mountain and bang, verse 2, it all happened in front of them. Which means they're chugging. They're trekking up a mountain. They're winded. And I'm going to guess because Jesus was pressed from all sides all the time, that they were sort of wonderfully away from the crowd. And let's not forget the numbers. There's only three of them, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. So you got to be kind of winded, but you got to be going, oh. the crowds are not tugging at us and pressing in, trying to get a look or a touch at Jesus. Jesus, all of that's going on here, I'm pretty sure. And just the four of them are there. It's only verse 1, so it, I'm not sure how long it lasted. Um, but then let's talk about Jesus while we're slowed down a little bit. Because I think what we have here is, is Jesus with something inside that's, um, let's call it a, a, a quickened pulse. Uh, Isaiah says in chapter fifty verse seven that, that and and Jesus, these words are actually used in Luke chapter five verse fifty one of Jesus that at a certain point prior to this, he set his sights like flint for Jerusalem. I had to look up the word. It's like flint and steel. It means determined. it means it's a very hardened. I'm set for what's about to take place for me in Jerusalem. So Jesus is, can I say it this way? Lugging that with him. He's carrying that purpose in him. He had it before, but the Bible makes a point of calling attention to that setting of his focus. For what he described, don't forget, um, Back in chapter 16 when he described, you know what, it's going it's to be tough, verse 21, and he covers all that details. It's as though his plan, which was a plan all along, had been set in motion. And the weight of what he must have felt, I, I'm just guessing. He, remember, he's God-man. That means there's a part of him that would feel the heaviness would experience the weight that he must have felt. And I'm guessing the burden was constant. So what did Jesus do? Well, he did what he did a lot, which was uh, when he was pressed, he prayed. He, He just took some time and sought strength, in this case, to endure the suffering that's ahead. And we described in verse 21. He, he spent some time praying for peace to persevere the great grief that was to come. He prayed for help, knowing that he would be pressed to the edge and, um, and hit hard. And as you know if you've been there, heaven sometimes, not always, C.S. Lewis in the book I told you about earlier, Um, he talks about those terrible times of suffering and you cry out and cry out and cry out and there's silence. I won't ask for a show of hands, but it might be redemptive. Have you ever been there? I've, I've been there. I know people that have been there. And when I walk in a room in a hospital and and they're there, I know something in my soul that's like that father that was desperate and he tried everything and there was no help coming. And he cried out, God, I do believe, but help my unbelief, I'm getting weak. And, and, And so... Sometimes there's silence, but verse 2 is just the opposite. Sometimes heaven answers boldly. And that's exactly how the word I would use to describe verse 2 that we just read. Jesus is transfigured. What's the word mean is a great question. Um, well, I'm here to tell you. No. Um, uh, it's a Greek word, metamorpho. We get the transliterated word metamorphosis. Getting a little closer. What animal do you think of when it? Yeah, butterflies, caterpillars, the whole deal. And they're changed. The actual definition is change on the outside that comes from the inside. This was, in a small way, I believe, a glimpse at his glory. And you say, well, didn't he always have glory? Oh, he did, but it was concealed in his humanity. If you and I lived in that day, most of the time we'd go, there's Jesus. Man, he's cut. He, he, he swings a pretty serious axe or whatever, chopping wood. He worked with wood. He's well, We would have seen a human, is my point. We wouldn't have seen this human with a glow around him as he walked from place to place. He was a man, but his glory was concealed. He was truly God, but it was concealed in his flesh. See the idea here. And because of that, you, you, you are watching here, I think, the curtain pull back to see what he really is, God, in the flesh. Concealed up to this point most of the time, but in this moment, It's happening. A glimpse of his glory. Until that day, Jesus' identity as the glorious God had actually been mostly concealed by his humanity. Um, So, as the three, verse 2, struggled to see and to focus their eyes on Jesus, two others were told show up. And it's two people that I admire, and so did Peter, James, and John. And they lived, respectively, centuries before this moment. They, were, they lived, did amazing things that our Bible tells us about, and then they left the scene. So you can imagine, put yourself in Peter, James, and John's uh, shoes. Not only are they blown away by this view of Jesus that's suddenly in plain view. But they're seeing these two that they, too, have either read about or heard about. They never knew them. Absolutely no conversation with them until this moment. And this is a mind-blowing moment for these disciples, Moses and Elijah. Jesus must have wanted, I think, in this moment to hold on to this Seen, they show up, and of course Jesus knew who they were, and 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 maybe maybe for a moment he thought, you know, I know where they just came from, my father, and uh, man, I want to go home. I want to I want to return home with them and see my father and share again with the unconcealed glory that's mine, along with my father. Wouldn't that be a normal? natural moment but here Jesus stood with these two who had he knew he watched he was present when they had suffered and been rejected two who had in fact also been delivered Moses and Elijah remember Exodus 14 is a, is a must read today it's in your text it's in your notes look at it and see this glorious, uh, like like, deliverance that Moses got to be a part of, as the the sea parted, and he was he was rescued, he was delivered by the advancing Egyptians, and then comes Elijah, uh, centuries later, and he's delivered from this nasty queen Jezebel, and. Uh, And she was gunning for him, in fact, made a declaration, you're dead by sunset or I'll die. In other words, I'm gunning for you, full bore. And he ran for his life, interestingly, right after his greatest victory, when he stood tall against the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. So that happens, it's another sermon, some other time. Uh, That's in 1 Kings 19. So would you add that to your reading list today? Exodus 14, 1 Kings 19, okay? Now, um, I'm just going to guess something, but I'll ask it as a question. Are you curious, even a little bit, what they talked about? Do you see verse 3? Let me look at it again. I'm not making this up. They appeared to them, and they were, this is Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. So you want to know what they were talking about? (laughs) So do I. (laughs) No one knows. I hope you'll do this, and I mean this in a sanctified way. Don't get crazy with it. But in moments like this, spend time there, and let your imagination ask the Holy Spirit just to tell you, "Hey, give me a little hint. I'm not going to preach it like it's fact, but I want to be present in it. Because you and I could blow by that and just go, oh, they were chatting. about what?" I, I wrote down a couple of things. I, I don't know. These may not be, but um, perhaps words of encouragement. They knew what he was carrying around with them. They had been sent by the Father to come back. And, and maybe they were saying, You can do it. Your Father and the Holy Spirit will sustain you. Don't give up. Don't falter. In that moment, it, he didn't have any risk of faltering. That was coming. Maybe that's what they said. Or perhaps they were words of hope. Imagine in this moment what it would have felt like to Jesus to hear, Hey, we're, we're pulling for you. We can't wait for you in just a few days from now to come home. In fact, the place isn't the same without you, Jesus. <laughs> right? I mean, whatever it was, it was worth recording. They were talking... With Jesus, one thing's for sure, the appearance of both of these greats, Moses and Elijah, was just what Jesus needed. To infuse him with the strength that would be required to walk a road of of suffering that stretched before him. Still, there was one more voice that would mean everything to him. And it's beautifully captured. Uh, it came as Peter was awkwardly planning to build some tabernacles of some kind or small buildings on the mountain. Um, maybe, uh, maybe. in fact, we're told while Peter was still saying, hey, I can do this, verse 5, suddenly this cloud rolls in. It's a bright cloud and it covers them. And from the cloud comes a voice. In mid-sentence, a voice. Peter's dies out. And the father had spoken. This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I'm just going to guess that wasn't intended for Moses or Elijah. Right? It was meant for me. And Moses, or and uh, Peter, James, and John. Listen to him. His father had spoken. The mountain shook. And the three, not surprisingly, verse 6, fall face down to the ground, terrified. And Jesus was filled with fresh. Strength that he needed, verse 7. It was that voice, those words, exactly what Jesus needed three years earlier. Remember Mark, Matthew, and Luke, chapter 3, at the end? He's baptized and about to be led by the Spirit into the wilderness to do what? Check out the cactus. No, to go toe-to-toe with the devil himself in an epic fight. And just before he left, his baptism, spiritual high. Just before he leaves to go out and 40 days and 40 nights with no food, and then the fight was on. You talk about extreme. And what does he need at that moment? Is almost identical what he receives at this moment. There's this beautiful scene where Jesus comes up out of the water and, and the, um, the, the thunderous voice again appears and says, this is, my, this is my son. I'm proud of him. Listen to him. And at that moment, a visual, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. This is all, it's all right there. Matthew 4, Luke 4. Same passage. So here it is again. Same thing is happening here. Um, let me ask you the question. And we'll finish with this. When facing horrific suffering, hardship, where do you turn? Where you, you have choices, so do I, in moments like that. Where, where do you turn in these moments? It says a lot about what you get in these moments. What voice do you listen to or listen for? What gives you what you need to endure? And I'm going to use the word unjust suffering. Jesus' answer to that question was his father's voice. This was a defining day for all on the mountain. When the three look up, I just can't even believe that moment. They don't see any of the above. The voice ended. Moses and Elijah are gone. And it's just those three and Jesus. And Jesus, um, his face, his eyes, um, the sound of his voice. Can I not guess at something and tell you this actually changed their lives? And I get that from, if we had time, go to John chapter 1, and you will see that John actually talked about seeing his glory. He wrote that later. But it was such an impactful moment, this scene, we were taking time, that that he talked about it. And and not just him, Peter did the same thing. He called he called himself an eyewitness of his glory, as he wrote in Second Peter chapter one. His glory. His glory changed them. Who he was changed who they were. Um. So a couple of takeaways this morning. You can write these down. I think they're uh, tested with the truth that we've unpackaged here this morning the ro- road to glory passes through the valley of suffering it's not a smooth road is what i'm trying to say i like paved roads when i'm pulling a trailer but this one's not well paved there's potholes it's uncomfortable it's painful at times but the pathway to glory is, the glo- is, is suffering. It would be true of Jesus days later. It would be true of every one of the disciples. And I'm going to say it's true of disciples today still. Uh, Jesus said as much to his disciples the very last night he was with them before he emerged from the garden or from the upper room, actually. And, um, and he said it this way. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. No big deal. No problem. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But you've chosen me and I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. So when suffering comes, don't be surprised. That's what he's saying in John 15. Those words came out of it. Don't be surprised. It was part of the father's plan, and his plan was a good one for his son. Um, On the mountain that day, there was one who had been slow to understand who this Jesus was. But Peter was not just moved to say, I saw his glory. I want to quote you his very words from 1 Peter chapter 4. By the way, if you're looking for a single book of the Bible that helps you uh, in more practical and kind of personal ways when you're suffering, Anybody need that kind of resource? 1 Peter, the whole book, five chapters. It's the suffering book of the New Testament. It would be on par, in my estimation, with Job in the old. 1 Peter 4, the same Peter that was with Jesus, James, and John on the mountain. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering. He writes, verse 12, as though something strange were happening to you. You know why people think it's strange? Because we've been sold a gospel that's not completely accurate. We're sold this story that says, come to Jesus and every problem will be solved. You're never told, come to Jesus and die, like we started this talk with. It's true. And it's hard. And the, and the fact is, suffering will, will come, and some people's response is, that's, that's freaking me out. I did not have a place for that as though some strange ordeal were happening to you. Quoting again. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory, when he returns someday. Amen? That's got to help us through the hard times. There is no better medicine for any of us than than Jesus. We're going to share communion. And this morning, um, I want you to, with me, take in something that is so common it's easily missed. But remember the simple truth that the bread and the cup represent, they're actually, we're told to remember that they, they describe Jesus. These are just a picture. Jesus called attention to parts of a meal. Last night he was with his disciples, the upper room. And he shared this time with them, and he says, Hey, guys, this is a picture of me and my life crucified to pay the penalty for your sins. There's movement up here, and it's easy to forget what was just said. This was given my body, my life, to pay the penalty for that was due for your sins, for my sins. Moments before Jesus was arrested, uh, he passed through a garden. Um, That night it was not a peaceful garden. I've been to peaceful gardens. One's in my backyard. Uh, There's rose gardens that are just quiet and calm. This was not a peaceful garden. It was a place of agony that night. Knowing the horrors that lay ahead, Jesus did what he often did. He sought solace. He sought it. And I want to share with you this, this morning um, a poem. As servers, join me now in the front. We're going to bring you communion. And this poem, um, I would credit with Ella Wheeler Wilcox. And it's, it describes the garden where Jesus and all, all of us who journey as Jesus did, through a treacherous garden. Would you close your eyes and just listen to these words and I'll read them carefully. It's called Gethsemane. Down shadowy lanes across strange streams bridged over by our broken dreams behind the misty caps of years, beyond the great salt fount of tears, the garden lies. Strive as you may, you cannot miss it on your way. All paths that have been or shall be pass somewhere through Gethsemane all those who journey sooner or late must pass within the garden's gate must kneel alone in darkness there and battle with some fierce despair God pity those who cannot say not mine but thine And who only pray, let this cup pass because they cannot see the purpose in Gethsemane. As we are served communion, I'd have you hold on to the picture of suffering that we've talked about this morning. And make it personal. As you suffer, will you move beyond? Let this cup pass to not my will, but thine. So you can see the purpose in Gethsemane.